We're reading in the Bible this morning from the book of Hebrews, which is on page uh, 1003 if you're using the church Bible. I can't help but comment on that last line of the hymn, had I a thousand hearts to give, Lord, they should all be Thine. What a joy when the believer can say that from the very depths of their being. And if I could write another line for that last one, it would be, had I a thousand lives to live, Lord, they should all be Thine. Well, let's hear the Word of God, shall we? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. You'll notice that we're breaking into a section here. We'll explain that, how that fits in a moment. But let's hear God's Word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect being tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if you're new to church or perhaps are unfamiliar with this part of the Bible and perhaps your background precludes a familiarity with some of the language that this passage uses, you may find that the themes, some of the language here in this section of Hebrews does not immediately appear relevant to Western civilization. I say Western civilization in a general sense, uh, I came from probably the preeminent country in Western Europe. Uh, we always like to differentiate. We talked about ourselves and Europe as two distinct re- realities there, but we like to talk about everybody distinct from reality. And then, and then there's North America, which known as Greater Scotland, really, because uh, we invented America, as you know, uh, and then the rest of you came along and filled the spots that were vacant. But, but anyway, that's an, a topic for another day. Western culture generally believes that it alone interprets reality. We think that Western ways of looking at the world, Western values are all, are all pervasive. Uh, we are, there's no doubt, I think it would be true to say we are more at home with technical, scientific, business, and therapeutic metaphors than we are with some of the religious metaphors that you see in a a section of Scripture like this. Talk about priests and sacrifices is not something we readily identify with. But the reality is that Christianity is a Catholic religion. It is a universal religion. It is found all over the world, and there are massive parts of the world, far greater than our Western world, that are very familiar with the language that you find in a section like this, very familiar with the work of a priest and the offering of a sacrifice, 
For both of those things are still very much a significant feature of the everyday life of billions of people on our planet today. That's just the reality. Some time ago, Time magazine ran an editorial, and in that editorial there was this statement, quote, what modern man, meaning Western man, of course, and woman, what modern man needs most is a priest. Now, I, I wonder what they meant by that. As I read the rest of the article, I think what they were talking about was a mix of a therapist and an advocate. What they were saying is, this is their projection onto the work of the priest. It may have been written by someone whose familiarity with Christianity was perhaps of the Roman variety, and so the work of a minister or a priest was something they'd heard about, but they'd absolutely no idea what they were doing. Uh, they, they were meaning what we need, what we all need, is a sympathetic ear, someone to listen to us, someone who sits down and hears what's on your heart, what's on your mind, and so on. And on the other hand, what we need, kind of the other side of the coin, is we need someone who will plead our case or plead our cause. They were thinking, in other words, the timepiece was thinking of the role of a priest in purely human and therapeutic and mechanistic terms. Someone who comes alongside to sympathize with us, someone who has some ability to advocate on our behalf, who knows what we need, and so on. Now, there's no question. I think that there are many people in our society who need people who have those kinds of qualifications. It's true, isn't it? But I want to come to the, that language, the language that time uses, which is, I, I would say, the kind of the way, if, if we think about priesthood at all, that's probably the way most people in our, in our Western society do. But I want to challenge it and to say that if you're going to understand the language of priesthood universally, first of all, you need to understand that the very presence of a priest presupposes two things. It presupposes both a gap and a bridge. A gap and a bridge. The gap in view is the, is the distance between a human being and the deity, the divinity that's involved. And the bridge, which is represented by the priest, the bridge is the connection or the way of connection by which humans can overcome the gap and have some connectivity with the God, the deity in question. And as we come to this language this morning, I need you to understand what this means for us. As we come to this language that is foreign to our Western ears, I want to explain how it is that the author of Hebrews is saying that we have a great high priest. What he means by that, what he presupposes by that, he presupposes by this, this great gap. The Bible presupposes it everywhere. 
that there is this infinite moral distance between humans on the one hand and the God who is there on the other. An infinite moral distance. It is impassable. The distance is irreconcilable. By itself, there is no way for us to get from one place to the other, from where we are to where God is. That is the fundamental thing that we need to get within our grasp. This is the really, this is the real problem that lies at the heart of humanity, and you see it illustrated all over the place. Back in the UK this week, I don't often read UK news because it's good to get away from it. It's a bit, little bit boring in comparison to what's going on here right now, but anyway. Uh, This last week, there was a a member of parliament in the British parliament who had been unmasked and had to come out uh, as as a Christian. And uh, this led to a whole flurry of horror, horror in the newspapers and on television. All the commentators, horrified, how can this man be the leader of a political party in the United Kingdom in these days? He is a Christian. This is the most serious, potentially serious political crisis we have faced in our generation. I mean, this is it. The headline read like this. You're waiting for it. We don't believe in God. And we hate him. We don't believe in God, and we hate him. Can you believe that? That's the reality, isn't it? But when you listen to the atheists, especially the super cool atheists who are getting a lot of attention nowadays, although I think their time has just slipped by, I think they're not as popular as they were because everybody's seen through them. But, but, but those atheists, that is their attitude, isn't it? We don't believe in God. They're just dismissive of any idea of God. But at the same time, they hate the God they don't believe in. They hate Him with a bitter hatred. They get very agitated about the God they don't believe in. If you really don't believe in something, why do you get worked up about it? Why do you get angry about it? If it's not there, if it doesn't exist, then you have nothing to worry about, nothing to bother about, and nothing to argue over. Now, that phenomenon, I suggest to you, is indicative of this infinite moral gap of which we are speaking this morning. Not only is there a gap, but there is a bridge. And the bridge is indicated by the priest. His job is to facilitate the reconciling, the coming together of us on the one hand and God on the other. We might use in our Western in our Western language, we may use the language of the arbitrator, the person whose job it is is to facilitate the coming together of two opposing sides and the reconciling of those sides. This laid the very heart of the Old Testament law of Moses. In the law of Moses, Moses explained that of which the gap consisted. He explained through teaching us the law of God, especially in the Ten Commandments, just how great this gap was. We are at an infinite distance from the God who is there. But Moses in his law also instituted the priesthood. 
and the sacrificial system within Israel. And he taught the people how it is that God himself, from his side, has initiated a means by which there can be a renewing of the connection and the relationship between man, men and women on the one hand, and God on the other. Now, that's the background then to the language we're reading today. He is saying to these people, we have a great high priest. We have someone who can actually renew the link between humanity and its maker, God. Now, why does he introduce this language at this point? Well, the the answer is at the end of that 14th verse. Here is the issue. He is writing to people, this author is writing to people who are Christians. He calls them brothers early on. And he recognizes that these people have a confession to make. If you were to ask them what they believe, they would tell you what they believe. They have a confession. They make it from time to time. They, they tell people what it is they are and who it is they believe in. Their confession is that Jesus Christ is the God of Israel. Their confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what they confess. He is Lord. And that word Lord packed into it is all of the language that we find in the Old Testament about the God of Israel. Everything we find out about the God of Israel is compressed into that word Lord. The personal name of God. The name which the Jewish people will not utter. The unutterable name. And I won't utter it this morning with respect for, out of respect for them. I'll substitute the word Jehovah for that name, for that purpose. In our Bibles, English Bibles, it is usually represented by uppercase letters, L-O-R-D. That name, the personal name of God, that is the word, that is the name that is indicated when it says that Christian people are those who confess that Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is the only God there is. Which is why, you see, there is absolutely no relationship whatsoever between the Christian God and the Islamic God, for example. Because in Islam, there is no confession that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is what Christian people confess. They confess that Jesus is God, that He is Lord. But there were those people, you see, Do you notice at the end of verse 14, here are people who find themselves perhaps like that politician I mentioned back in England now, who right at this point of time is finding that having confessed this, he's now run into trouble with the media. You may not run into trouble with the media because you're not famous enough, but you'll run into trouble perhaps with the people in the building that you live in or in in the apartment that you share or with your family or with your colleagues at work. You may find yourself confessing Jesus as Lord in a hostile environment, or at least of an environment that is not conducive to talk about it. Now, when I talk about confessing Jesus as Lord, let me just clarify one thing. I do not mean that Christians are all the time running off the mouth talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting that the answer to every question is Jesus, like the Sunday school teacher who was describing an animal that was climbing a tree with a long bushy tail and asked the children, 
what it was. How, what, what was the name of the animal? And the little boy puts his hand up and says, please, miss, I know it sounds like a squirrel, but the answer must be Jesus. Because it's Sunday school, after all. I mean, that's not, that's not what's going on. If you live with people in an apartment building, if you live with people in a flat, if you've got family that aren't Christians, please don't be always talking about Jesus. You will become really irritating. Really irritating. This is what it means to be a confessor of Christ. When people ask you, Peter says, in, uh, in First Peter, when people ask you for a reason for the hope that you have, then you tell them the answer. Okay? That's what it is to be a confessor. So if you're being interviewed by the media and they say what it is gets you up in the morning, well, actually, Jesus is Lord. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what makes my day. That's what drives my life. You can say that with a clear conscience. So these people are under, feeling under pressure. They're under pressure of letting go or of putting their, con, their confession underneath, underneath the chair so that nobody recognizes it. They're afraid now to become public. That's what he's worried about. Do you notice the language he uses there in verse 14? Let us hold firmly. It's what, what it projects is the picture that there's somebody wanted to snatch it away, snatch away your confession that Jesus is Lord, and He's encouraging us to hold firmly to the faith that we profess, because it's always under pressure. Jesus told a parable once about two men who built their house. One built it on the sand, and one built it on the rock. You know the story. A wise man built his house upon the rock. It was the foolish man who built his house in the sand. That's right. I'm trying to remember the words of the children's song. I should have thought just about the, the story instead of trying to remember the words. And I was going to sing it, but I won't for you. Just, just today, I'll, I'll let you off. Um, but in that, in that parable, you see what Jesus is saying is people have an outward profession. People confess something. And you, your confession is either based on the Word of God or it's based on something else. But whether it's based on the Word of God or in something else, one thing is the reality is there's always going to be trials and storms and tempests blowing. You're always going to come under pressure of one kind or another. And unless you are firmly rooted in the Word of God, in the Word of Christ, then your house will fall. The author is concerned for some of the people he's speaking to. This is, I'm concerned for you and I this morning as we sit in this room, that we hold firmly to the faith we profess, that we don't let go, that we remember all the time that there is an enemy out there who wants to snatch it from our hands. So hold it firmly. Hold it firmly. Now, he gives them an incentive. He gives them an encouragement. He reminds them, as he reminds us, of our great high priest. Now, see the things that he says about the high priest. We have, this is the first point. We will probably only get the first point today. We have a surpassing high priest. Since, therefore, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. He wants us to reflect on him. 
Pontifex Optimus Maximus, our great high priest. That was Scottish. No, eh, sorry, it was Latin. Now, see what he says then about our high priest. He says a number of things. He says, first of all, that he is great. He is great. In the context, he's going to go on to illustrate how great he is, this this, uh, priest of ours. He is marked out as being different from and superior to all other priests. The the writer is thinking primarily of the Jewish background of the people to whom he's writing. They had a priesthood. And uh, at the time he's writing, the temple is still there in Jerusalem. The priests are still officiating. The the sacrifices are still being offered. Everything is going on as it has now for for a thousand or so years there in the temple. And he is going on to say that the, the, the people who are occupying that office, descended as they were from the tribe of Levi and from Aaron, uh, the cousin of Moses in particular, that those priests are operating in that system and so on, and they're great people, they're good people, they're good ministers of the nation of Israel and so on, but our priest exceeds them. He is the great, great high priest. And he goes on to explain why. Because, he says, He has passed through the heavens. He has passed through the heavens. Now, the Jews thought in terms of three heavens, there was the sky all around us here. The birds fly in the sky. That's heaven number one, the heavens. Heaven number two is where the stars, the galaxies, the planets are. And then there is the heaven of heavens, where God is. Now, we need to think about that for a little moment. Jesus passed through the heavens to the heaven of heavens. That's what he's saying. Now, how do we understand the heaven of heavens? Well, he said that's where God is. But remind ourselves this morning, what is God? God is a spirit. Where is God? God is everywhere. How intensely is God everywhere? He is very intensely everywhere. He is everywhere in created reality. He is everywhere outside of created reality. God is everywhere, everywhere. So, in what sense can we talk about the highest heaven? Well, the highest heaven is a locale that God has created where His Son in His humanity might be located outside of this realm in which we find ourselves. It's a realm that God has created where we, when we die, our spirits may go there and be with the Lord Jesus where He is. And one day when our bodies are raised together, that heaven in a sense will come down and the created reality we live in of stars and planets and our earth will be transformed and God will be with us in a physical way, looking into our eyes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, when you think of the the heavens then, what is being said here is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
is located in a specific place that is a real place. You remember he said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you will be also. John Owen puts it like this, this is the place of God's glorious residence, the holy habitation of God, the resting place of blessed souls, the palace of the great King. Where is His throne and thousands of His holy ones ministering to Him? Heaven does not contain God, but it locates God, especially in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Jesus is today. Jesus' body has to be somewhere. His body is not ubiquitous, as Lutherans think. That is, His body is not able to be everywhere at all times. His body, like yours, can only be in one place at a time. Jesus, in His very physical resurrection and exaltation, has taken His human nature to heaven as a front-runner for us who will follow and will share that heaven with Him. The, the heavens here is plural uh, and uh, is emphatic. And our Lord Jesus has entered through the heavens to heaven and sat down on the divine throne. He has sat down, we were told in chapter 1, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, Paul, Paul the apostle, explains in his letter to the Ephesians something of what is going on here. He, he uses the language of descent. Now, we, we've, we've re- seen the writer to the Hebrews use this language of descent. When, when he, he, began, he begins in chapter 1, you remember by describing the eternal Son as God. And then in chapter 2 of describing how it is that the eternal Son who is God leaves that realm and makes Himself for a little while lower than the angels. He descends to where we are. He comes into our realm, the realm of creaturely existence. The writer goes on to tell us that He took flesh and blood like us, that He suffered as we do, and that eventually He died as we will. And it was to die for us that He came and took our humanity, that He might live and die for His people. So He descended. And then this one who descended, let me read you what Paul says in Ephesians 4, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. He was taken up into glory. Later on, he will say in chapter 9 that he has gone to heaven itself to appear in the presence of God with us. Paul, in in that letter in Ephesians, makes a quotation there from Psalm 68. And in Psalm 68, the psalmist describes the ascension of the Lord Jesus And he describes what what accompanied him as he ascended. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. 
You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even the rebellious. Paul quotes that. He applies it to Jesus. He's saying that as the Lord Jesus left here and went to heaven, it was a triumphant moment. It was an exalted moment. The angels and the archangels, 10,000 times 10,000 in brilliant garments, join Him, escort Him. The picture of Psalm 24 is fulfilled. Lift up your gates. Lift up your doors, ye ancient gates, that the King of glory may come in. Here is the King of glory riding in His royal estate, going into the, into the presence of God. This is what the disciples, after 40 days, saw. You remember when they were there on the mountain, and when He had said these things, and as they were looking on, it says in Acts 1, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they're still gazing up to heaven, two angels stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Oh, this was represented. This was represented in the Old Testament by the high priest who would come into the outer court and go through, pass through the crowds of people gathered there to observe the worship of the temple. He would go through a gate and he would go into the, into the holy place where all of the priests functioned and occupied their offices and he would pass through the priests until he came to the great curtain, four inches thick, from ceiling to floor and wall to wall that barred everyone and anyone from going into the Holy of Holies. And he would pass through the curtain, and he would be lost to view. And that language is used by the writer to the Hebrews to say, our Lord Jesus Christ has passed from this earthly sphere, passed through His colleagues, the apostles, passed into heaven itself. Now He is invisible to us, but He is in heaven and He is representing us. And one day, say the angels, the curtain will be torn away and the Lord Jesus shall descend and will be seen by everyone when He comes again in power and glory. He identifies this one who has passed through the heaven. How does He identify Him? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. He reminds us that He's qualified, this Jesus, to be our priest because He shares our human nature. The word Jesus, the name Jesus, applies. The writer has done has been quite deliberate in the use of it up to this point in using the human name, Jesus, Yeshua. He has used it specifically of the humanity, the human nature of Jesus. He's done this to underline both the humanity and the historicity. It is the Jesus of Nazareth he's talking about. Thomas Aquinas puts it like this, having exhorted them to hasten to enter into God's rest, citing Christ's greatness according to His divine nature, the apostle here does the same in regard to His human nature. He is acting for us in His human nature. 
His name, Jesus, indicates not only His human nature, but also His divine work. He has come to save His people from their sins. The Lord saves. That's what the word Jesus means. And so He's come as a man. He's come to represent us. But you immediately think to yourself, well, is any man, even a great man, even a wonderful man, even a man genetically perfect, is anybody, any human being, able to represent all of us? And so he adds this other bit of information that he's been giving us, that this man, Jesus, is the Son of God, is the Son of God. The word Son denotes His eternal relation to the Father. That's how we know there's a Father, because He's the Son. And everything the Father is, He is. The Father is life in Himself. The Son is life in Himself. Everything the Son has uh, comes from the Father. Everything the Father has, He gives to the Son. His is the supreme name. And what we understand from that is that in everything He did in His humanity, He is strengthened by His union with His divine nature so that God the Son strengthens His human nature to bear the load, the burden that He will have to bear throughout His life. It's going to tell us that He is tempted in all points just like we are. It's going to tell us that He was tested just as we are. And He's tested on our behalf. Well, how can He be tested on all of our behalf? He's only one man. Well, this is how He can do it. Because with the Holy Spirit's indwelling and with the, with the help of His divine nature, He is being strengthened all the time to bear an infinite load, an infinite burden. He feels it. He feels that burden, and He's sustained. And it's this Jesus, who is the Son of God, who has entered once for all into the holy places, who has gone into that inner place behind the curtain, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. It is this one who has not gone into a, a holy place made with hands, an earthly temple, which are only copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. One writer puts it like this, the full and ontological entry, that is, as a being, his entry, the entry of the human Jesus through resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to the right hand into the power and glory that are proper to God. He is in the presence of God. The writer is saying to us, this is at the heart of your profession. Think about it. Your priest, he'll go on to say, the one who sympathizes with you. We'll tease that out next time. The one who is able to come alongside you because he has been where you are. Remind yourself before you get into that discussion that he is Jesus, the Son of God. This is the one you profess. Beloved brother and sister in the Lord Jesus, this is what you mean when you say that you're a Christian. You confess because you believe in your heart that Jesus is God. 
that he is God. God in every way except that he's not the Father. God of power, God of glory. That's your confession. The writer says to us this morning, don't let that go. Don't let that go. Don't let anyone snatch that away from you. Don't let anyone silence you. This is what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you're here and you don't know what it means to be a Christian. Let me remind you, if you don't know already, this is what it means. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and by Lord you mean the God of Israel, the Creator of everything, the Ruler of all things, the Redeemer of God's people, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, you can be saved today. Very simple. Very clear. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. I remember the day that that became very clear to me as a little boy in Christian endeavor. And my memory verse that I was given that I had to go out and stand in front of them and repeat with these words, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I always had these people telling me I needed to have a conversion story, and I needed to get born again. And all the, I went to these meetings, and people said, if you put your hand up, come forward, do something else, then you'll be converted. And I could never really understand why I needed to be converted because I loved the Lord Jesus. I'd always loved the Lord Jesus, and I couldn't remember a time when I hadn't loved the Lord Jesus. And then I read these words, and it said this, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's why I get kicked in at school, because I tell them I'm a Christian. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. I have absolutely no doubt God has raised him from the dead. And as I'm really saying these words, repeating them in that Christian Endeavor meeting and saying them, I realize this is what I, this is where I stand. What are those last words? You will be saved, rescued. And that was the end of all the striving. That was the end of all the worrying. That was peace. Peace that hasn't left me since I was nine years of age. So for the last ten years, nothing. <laughs> it has not left me. And this morning, you can find this peace too by resting entirely on the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. My Jesus, I love you. I know you're mine. We pray this morning that all of us in this room would be able to say that and mean it, understand it, grasp it, trust it. Thank you that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. And when we're struggling with what it means to be a Christian, whatever issue we've brought with us today, we're struggling with. Help us to remember that the Lord Jesus is sympathetic and very human. But that humanity is supermatched with the fact that He is the Son of God and that his, even His humanity today in glory, is glorified so that we worship His humanity without committing idolatry. 
we adore His humanity. We can say we worship Jesus Christ because of His union with the Son of God. We pray that You would unloose unloose our hearts and our voices as we sing. And as we leave here, as we go out to this week, we pray that we might be willing at any time that it is required to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In His strong name we pray. Amen.